oftentimes to win us to our heart. The instruments of darkness tell us truths. Blood will have blood. That's very good. Well, it sort of leads into what we're going to hopefully be talking about tonight. Welcome to the third episode of Something Wicked This Way Comes. I'm Lee. I'm joined by Dave in Wales, as usual. Or oh, is it Christopher Walken? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dave, maybe Chris. We okay. will see. Yeah, good. I'm more familiar with Dave. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about Sutcliffe again, uh, the Yorkshire Ripper case. Uh, this... Hello, Peter here. So, in the previous episodes, we've covered the investigation and the trial, and I think we finished, well, we've, we sort of segued into rather bizarre stuff last time. But uh, on this one, I was thinking we should just do the aftermath. So, you know, spend some time talking about Sutcliffe's time in prison. Yes. Some theories, conspiracy theories maybe that have sort of come about since he's been locked up. And also books and adaptations. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to talk about was um, was the film. Now, there is a film out there about Peter Sutcliffe. If you're not really into the case, you probably haven't seen it. It was uh, made in 2011 by a writer and director called Skip Kite. He's going to sell this from Australia, doesn't he? I want to make a film about the Yorkshire Ripper. Okay? Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, the film itself is called Peter, Portrait of a Serial Killer. But then I noticed that it's sometimes called Peter, A Study of a Portrait for a Serial Killer. That always gets alarm bells going for me when I, I see a film and it changes the uh, the uh, the title of things. And, you know, you always think, mm, is this not going to be so great? I'm just going to go off on a slight tangent for a second uh, there, Lee, and, and podcast listeners. I'm just looking outside as we speak, and there's a cloud directly in front of me that looks like the head of Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, which is quite <laughs> remarkable, which might be another subject at some point that we might cover on our podcast. Indeed, if yeah. It comes. Yeah, so cloud-based historical yeah. figures aside, let's uh, talk about this film. Do you know what I thought was great? Do you know what I really thought they nailed brilliantly in the film? Peter's high-pitched voice. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I have to say that's probably the best part of the film, which is the performance by uh, Walt Kissey. He, uh, he is brilliant. He's brilliantly odd, and I think he had that kind of menace. I, 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 I'll be honest with you. I really liked the studio-based scenes in pubs and things like that, and, and in the car, in the sort of natural environment, when he's talking to his mate and he's going, look at those slags, look at them, just slags. And I thought it had this kind of real sort of soft voice menace. This guy had no feeling, no emotion. Her mother's a slag as well. Mother and daughter. A right pair of dogs. They, you know, get down to it. Together, like. Together? Not a pretty picture. A right pair of mucky bitches. So ugly. They have to do tricks. Together, you know, for cash. To keep warm. <laughs> I heard they say, the really dirty ones, they wear those, you know, French knickers. 
Aye. Filthy. Disgusting. Believe me, punters go through them all night. Like the... Like the return style. The turnstile? That's funny. You're right. It is funny. Like a turnstile. Click. 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 Dick. Click. 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 Dick. Dick. <laughs> I think what was telling them quite a clever scene was when the two detectives went into the, the abattoir and t set about copying what he did with his butchery, with his tools stabbing the pig and then showing the cuts and wounds on the pig to give an idea of the kind of brutality that he conveyed to his killers. You know, I thought that was quite a telling scene and, and that was cleverly done because far better than showing some you know, exploitative picture of some woman sort of ripped with the tits out and mm. slashed a bit. Do you know what I mean? One thing I did personally, though, find slightly troublesome with it was the, the scenes in the cell. I thought they were trying to be like a Harold Pinter. I thought it was kind of like Pinter-esque in the way they did it, you know, and slightly surreal, and the, the dialogue was a bit strange in the way that Pinter would be a little bit strange, and the acting was quite stagey. When you look at that film and you watch those scenes in particular, where there's yeah. just him and the uh, psychiatrist, is it Spencer, Dr. Spencer? Yeah, yeah. It just feels like it's a stage play, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that would be quite interesting to watch on the stage. I thought those scenes would have been really good if they were like close-ups of the faces, bit side to side, asking the mm. question, answering, you know, the Q&A with the close-ups of faces, you know. I suppose it might be just me as well. I was expecting a kind of realism and those prison cell scenes were more kind of kind of like slightly surreal or slightly avant-garde. Yeah, well, there, there is a reason for that, and uh, I might be revealing a bit of a spoiler. So Dr. Spencer seems to be offering help to Sutcliffe. I don't know what he's trying to do. Is he trying to get him to own up to his, his crimes or his madness? And uh, the, the reason for Dr. Spencer is that he's a figment of Sutcliffe's imagination. And what that's trying to show is these conversations that Sutcliffe's having with himself in his head, which is why it is a bit surreal, it's a bit odd, and you're not quite sure what's going on. It seems very inconsequential, the, the sort of conversations they're having most of the time. Uh, but that's that part's only revealed at the end. They want to know why. The Lord is my shepherd. Why? I've told them already. It was God. God told me to clean the streets of filth. God. Yes, God. I did what he or that voice told me to do. God. Yes, God. Because you just said or that voice it was God because you know it's God talking to you when it's God talking to you I think what disappointed me is that it seems to go with Sutcliffe's voice of God theory yeah and I think in a way there's a degree of sort of empathising or sympathising and it's very hard to be able to do that at all with this particular human being it does show like his childhood where he's hiding in the loft because he used yeah. to do that to avoid going to school. It shows him as, as a loner, you know, sat on his own in pubs. The, the one thing I really liked about this film was the Sutcliffe scenes as him as a person and then intercut with those bits of documentary footage and interview. 
that really kind of gave you that feeling of the time. Including the Maidley bit, you know. Ever young Richard Maidley, the real life Alan Partridge, doing his, his bit. For Calendar News, I think that would have been, Calendar wouldn't it? Calendar News. And he, yeah. was, he was a great presenter. You can see why mm. he, he became so successful because he really conveyed that feeling in that, in that moment. Yeah, it was like a dark, rainy night behind him, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, dark, rainy night. Mm. He's telling out about this, the sort of the, the the feeling of the feeling of real fear on the streets, you know. And I think that. Um, well, there's a lot of footage, documentary footage in the film that I've never seen before, like interviews yeah. with his neighbours and... Uh, yes, and... exactly, that was great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. The footage of the people, the neighbours on the street was brilliant. He was laughing, he was laughing at us all the time, laughing at us. The police were left struggling to hold back the crowds. Just didn't expect it to be an ordinary, everyday sort of a chap, which he is. For the first time since he pleaded guilty two weeks ago, the soft, slightly high-pitched Yorkshire voice of Sutcliffe rang out across the courtroom. Terrible thing to think that he's been sat there and all the time we've been warning the kids and one thing another and he's been sat over there laughing tin at us, hasn't he, really? He was different. He was young man out. He also claimed that he heard an echoing voice in his cell saying, kill, kill. Good evening. I want to talk to you this evening not as a psychiatrist, because I've never met you, and because probably a psychiatrist is the last kind of person you want to see. I do want to ask you to give yourself up. You see, you've made your point eight times, and if you continue making your point, you're simply going to produce public sympathy for these prostitutes, and I'm sure that that is not what you want. I want to ask you for the supreme sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your liberty for your beliefs. I want you to pick up the phone, not tomorrow, not next week, but now, and tell the police who you are. The time I knew Peter for that uh, roughly two-year period, he never had a girlfriend. He never had a girlfriend? No. no. Why was that? Uh, he didn't seem to take off it, uh, his conversation, you know, at uh, that time. He, a good-looking lad, there was no doubt about it, you know, in his own way, but uh, his conversation wasn't really too good, you know, not, not much chat. He know. used to ask me to, uh, you know, if I had a mate that had make up a foursome, but none of my mates were ever interested, you know. They didn't fancy And they didn't know, not the local girls, you know. <coughs> they were just quiet, deep. An ex-grave digger tells the story of how Sutcliffe had once shown him a handful of rings. They'd be about five or seven rings, you know, and um, he said, uh, I've got these, you know, body, you know, bodies, like, you know. Pick up the phone, just pick up the phone and call me, because you're obviously a very disturbed young man. I'm thinking, he's the last, the least convincing, this great ponce, going, now come on, you are, let's be honest, you know. Who is he? So ineffectual. <laughs> didn't work. It's, it's exactly didn't work. So looked before he looked at it and go, I'm not picking on the phone and calling you, you great twat. <laughs> you great puffer. You're a big puffer bounce. Get knotted. I'm talking I... to the man who is the Yorkshire Ripper. Sound like he was doing a seance. <laughs> That's it, Lee. I'm talking to the man who says he's the Yorkshire Ripper. Now, come on. He's a good lad. Pick up the phone and get in touch. Ring Noel, ring Noel on Swap Shop. <laughs> Brilliant.
another aspect of the film which is very sort of heavy-handed I'd say is the religious imagery and there's no real evidence that I've come across that suggests that Sutcliffe was religious or I know he, he grew up in a Catholic household but you know you've got him kneeling at the feet of the Virgin Mary and there's all sorts of crosses everywhere and uh, so I think that's pushing the idea that God is controlling him. Yes of course and, and I think you're absolutely right there mate and it, it harks back to what you were saying to begin with about about this film and, and, and this is the angle that they decided to take which is that he was hearing messages from God and he had some kind of bipolar or schizophrenia that you know it was voices in his head telling him to do stuff and I don't like you I don't buy it so if you don't buy that and you don't buy his theory that you're not going to you're going to find that aspect of the film quite annoying and that's the shame of it because mm. these elements it was some of the over theatricality and that ruined it for me because some of it was very good yeah there was a scene I don't know if you noticed uh the scene where he's with that little girl and he's sat in a theatre on his own. Yeah. And then he's what he's watching a stage play of uh, himself and there's this little girl that keeps appearing, a girl of about eight or nine. That's the child that Sonia and him never had. Yes. Because I that's another so. aspect that's pushed in the film about the fact that they can't have children. So it's also supposed to be a contributing factor about why Sutcliffe used to attack the womb because he was so angry that um, they were childless. And that is, again, I suppose, in fairness to them making the film, it was brave and valid to do that. Because most filmmakers, when it comes to the case of serial killers, they don't want to go down routes that empathise with the killer. You know, understandably, the, you know, it's very hard for the public to watch something and empathise with a mass murderer. They don't want to know that about yeah. You wouldn't want to know that about Howard Shipman or Ian Brady no. or or you know Myra Hindley or Fred West. You know, no, absolutely. So you want to know that about the Peter Well, to be honest, I think the average audience member, even myself, who who knows a fair bit about the case, didn't get that at first. I think that was another problem with the film is that there was too many scenes that perhaps wouldn't have made sense or, or they weren't obvious in what they were trying to say. Like for the first time I watched the film, there was scenes where Sutcliffe's in that weird waxwork museum. Yeah. Now, I only found out about the waxwork museum a year or so ago when I was I read, yeah. read the book Gordon Burns, Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son, which yeah. covers Sutcliffe's childhood and, um, you know, later years very well. And I think it's probably the main source for uh, that information, really, about the diseased genitalia and uh, yeah. the exhibits of the wombs and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think we might have covered it in one of the previous podcasts. When we talked about it previously, it, 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 it strikes me that that was the sort of uh, genesis of this, uh, the nucleus, if you like, of this this obsession that he had. So it was happening early on in his life, you know. And, you know, he was, was a very dark boy. There was some dark things in his head, mm. you know, going on. There's no doubt about that. We're looking at a, a sociopathic narcissist who had come from probably quite an odd family. There was a, quite a bit of brutality that probably we'll never know about. There was things probably going on that we didn't know well, about. Well, I mean, if you read the, the Gordon Byrne book, he talks about the, the family and it was just an average Yorkshire family at the time, mm. quite a big family. And uh, Sutcliffe worshipped his mum. His dad was a bit of a... He wasn't a bad dad, really, though. There was some rumours that he knocked his wife about. But he, he did try yeah. to be a dad. And uh, I think but he comes across as a bit of a... Bit of a comical character rather than 
a brute, you know, bit of a yes. womanizer, like to drink, but nothing, nothing too extreme. If there is something, if there is a nucleus of, of uh, something within that character that has this kind of dark, potentially psychopathic or sociopathic side to the nature developing, and they see brutality and they see that as a fairly common case and they see, uh, if you look at all these cases, so many cases where there is some brutality, it's usually a combination of some brutality in the family, some strange, you know, bad social behaviour, and a head injury. It seems to be those combinations and some kind of resentment, some kind of real mother love and some kind of mother resentment. That definitely happened with Bundy. That was the case with Bundy. He felt very resentful because he, his mother was his... He, the person he thought was his mother was his grandmother or something along those lines. Yeah. Very similar to Jack Nicholson, actually, that. They, this is what they put down to him, you know, because they say there, oh, no, he had a fairly sort of middle-class upbringing, blah, 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 but... He was—he had this incredible animosity, apparently, about. Well, Suckliff had that resentment and animosity towards prostitutes, uh, didn't he? Absolutely, and he had that resentment and animosity towards his mother, didn't he? In the end, father humiliated. Yeah, he absolutely worshipped his mum, and when his dad exposed her of having this quite innocent affair, that Suckliff took that ter- terribly bad. You know, he—he—it he, yeah, yeah. it was said to have changed his view of women. She was the Virgin Mary. Yeah, she was, yeah. She was to use a a sort of biblical, the God, you know, if you did her voices. You know, she was the Virgin Mary, and that was completely destroyed for him, and it was destroyed by his father. And this is already somebody who's very sort of dark and confused, and already sort of having some, some sort of very negative thoughts and seeing that. You can imagine how devastated he was at finding out in in yeah. his mind that she's just like other women because uh, it came on the back of Sonia's affair being discovered which really hurt him. See that again there mm. again when we when we spoke about that previously that just says fix volumes this already insular you know there's an inner voice I believe that there's an inner voice and I thought they conveyed that well that pub scene in in the adaptation conveyed that really well when he's sat on his own in the pub and he's looking at the people coming in and he's yeah. slagging them off look at that look at that slag look at that slot and this I think was probably kind of the meat and veg and the nitty gritty of what was going on inside that man's head so it was very very vulnerable to the to that point of view so the moment that the so-called saintly mother and the saintly wife tips over the edge then that's it, all hell breaks through. And of course he is obsessed, you know, he's doing that grave digging, he's obsessed with the bodies, obsessed with going round the waxworks and seeing the... the... So he had this kind of unhealthy... Yeah, they're all obsession. building blocks, aren't they? And you can see why it led yeah, to, to what he did. The fact that it isn't overly sensational, the fact that it tries to look at it from a psychological point of view, I think is to their credit, because it's so easy to just do something completely sensational to do with... It could be argued that we're doing that. I like to think what we're doing in some ways by at times mocking him and sending him up <laughs> is is debunking the monster. We are informing that's, and entertaining. Yeah, that's what I, I that's exactly, what I think. Of course, you know, and, yeah. and, and this is it. And I think we're we're, we're never going to lie and say you know we're for the faint-hearted. Of course, we're not. We're gonna mm. we're gonna be kind of dark at times, use some dark humour in what we're doing here. But ultimately, what you and I are doing with this podcast is is debunking the monster. Yeah. So case, I just think he was pretty feeble, tragic little character, you know, and I think most of them are. That's rubbish. Every word. And, mm. the, and the opening scene where he's on the toilet and his wife's shouting him 
I thought that was really an interesting scene, and he's got the blooming jumper on inside out while he's having a he's masturbating, isn't he? On he the is, I mean, he's yeah. like Christ, this is pretty. This is pretty graphic straight away in a strange kind of way. Packing uh, his tools about having a wank. Yeah, absolutely. So he's kind of. Well, you hear Sonia, don't you, off camera shouting Peter, Peter, and, and that gets across what a bit of a nag and a pain she was. I think also what that's trying to convey is is that not that she was complicit in anything, but that she wanted him around and he would bugger off for hours on end, and he he could be this very aloof. Quite, probably quite mean figure where he would just go without go out without telling her. He creeps out of the house. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know. But I think we should correct uh, something we I think we said in the last podcast. We said she's still with Sutcliffe, but no, they actually divorced in the nineties. I think it was about a decade after. Yeah, because uh, I I wasn't aware of that. It's a fact that I missed. But she has been in contact with him, hasn't she? I mean, actually, in, in the back of my mind, I seem to think that I do remember them saying that she was divorced, but she still does have some contact with him. She never expressed any sympathy, as far as I know, for the victims, because she, no. did, she did stand by him. Yeah, absolutely. And she didn't seem to be very disapproving of what he did. Yeah. She was it's... just surprised. She is a weird character, very much hated by the Suckley family. I, I kind of wonder whether that maybe she might be even on the the spectrum, you know, for well, was, a, a, for Asperger's was, yeah, or something. Yeah, she was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. Ah, well, there you are. So she's schizophrenic, so mm. person with her own set of problems, and possibly, and, and I, I possibly just wanted to shun the media. You know, I don't want to. May very well be as big a victim, what, a, a, as big a victim as anybody else over this. Uh, well, obviously not of the dead, the poor dead, murdered people, but yeah. certainly, certainly a harrowed someone whose life has been completely changed forever. Let's put it that way. And this is mm. the irony of it, you know, that he's the, he went out and acted like this all-powerful demon, and at home it was like, would it be, a, would it be at all possible for you to uh, pass the salt down to me? Um, Sonia, dear. Yeah. yeah. Oh, here you go. Thank you, my love. Yeah. She, was, she was obsessed with decorating as well. She used Good. to decorate in the early hours of the morning. Sonia, Sonia, do you not fancy a little bit of uh, a little bit of find the tuppence? Put the put the roller down, Sonia, please. <laughs> so bizarre, isn't it? I mean, that you can imagine that, can't you? This the, at home, the meek Peter Sutcliffe, and this complete. Jekyll and Hyde. Well, yeah. well also, whilst uh, the coppers him. turned up at Sonia's house to tell him that they've arrested Peter in connection with the Yorkshire Ripper murders, she carried on watching this Open University documentary. Do you think it might have been, don't want to know reality? They use condoms in the car. Bloodstains on the dashboard. You know? Just like um... creosote, darling. It's just creosote. It's not blood. I know it smells. Smells like an abattoir. It's not blood. <laughs> just creosote. Do 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 do. Peter's not a killer. Do 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 do. Let's go to B and Q. Do 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 do. Okay, now what a life. Jesus mm. Christ. A horrible fucking tawdry fucking Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett meets fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre life. <laughs> for fuck's sake. I wonder if it would have been different had he not met, met Sonia. But I think that's exactly the kind of film that we maybe we, we want to see, Lee. You know, maybe that's the film we want to see. Maybe we want to see, like, this kind of kitchen sink, Alan Bennett stroke, uh, Ken Loach stroke, Mike Lee, sort of 
the goldfish bowl existence of the two of them not speaking to each other around the bloody kitchen table and miserable as sin as Sonia puts the flock wallpaper up <laughs> yearly <laughs> and then the other side of it is his fucking dark frenzy <laughs> you know as he goes out on the rampage you know yeah. but you don't have anything too graphic you just you hint at it maybe you film all the interiors of their life at home in black and white but when he's out at night it's in like stark color you know yeah yeah like vivid, vivid color just the occasional splattering of blood to give you an idea of the brutality you know yeah. we haven't had a film like that no, it's about. a fascinating relationship though. it is a fascinating relationship you, you wonder yet, if a, you know if he was say with i don't like to use the word normal but if he was with a woman not like Sonia would that woman have picked up on the fact that you know why is my husband being interviewed so many times why is my husband relying on me for his alibis when I can't be sure because people did criticize Sonia and saying that she must have known something or how daft she was to have not not suspected anything and uh, maybe if he was with a different woman, this woman would have been a, a bit more observant about his whereabouts and uh, the fact that he he did match a lot of the, the physical descriptions. Because I suppose every woman at the time was wondering, is this my husband who's doing these murders? You know, it would have, Absolutely. Gone, would have gone through their it's... mind. I mean, the police have said at the time that when she was told, you know, it was nothing but surprise and shock. But I think the fact that she did have her own sort of obsessions shall we say i think they were both quite insular and i think that was mm. that would be an interesting thing to show that they both could be quite separate and could live quite separately you know yeah. i think Sutcliffe did actually say in his confession that sonny used to she would be away every weekend you know down in london i think yeah and that's when he he did a lot of his attacks indeed and there are a lot of um there are cases in london that the unsolved cases that uh, sort yeah, well, this is what align the, with uh, Sutcliffe, definitely. don't they? This is what the uh, the book, The Secret Murders, covers, is the, indeed, the, the indeed. sort of commuter route between the two places yeah, uh, where a lot of these unsolved murders uh, happened. You're odd. I weren't asked. I'm not happy. As well as the film, there's also been the TV docudrama, uh, which we've yeah. also covered, but there's also... a the David Peace uh, Red Riding trilogy. Ah, I don't yes. know if you've read that or saw the adaptation. Yeah, I saw some of the adaptation of that. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was interesting. That's about the West Riding police force. Indeed, and that's what I love. What I like about that is it's really, it's really sort of pushing in there about the some of the behaviour of that of the police force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that 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 trilogy, or is it four books? I think it's four books, isn't it? That is based on the Yorkshire Ripper it, case. It, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've never I've never read the books. I've, uh, I thought the adaptation weren't that great, to be honest. I don't know if you saw them. I found them a little bit flat, to be honest. Yeah. From what I saw of it, I didn't see all of it. Uh, I should imagine reading, reading the books is far more telling. But it does delve into this police cor- corruption and some of the ill behaviour of the police force, the West Yorkshire police force. And, you know, there's quite a lot of situations that have taken place in that area with the police force. A lot of Masonic handshakes were taken and made and the Ripper case is no exception. You know, it's probably the rule really. And there was a lot of other situations around. This is what some people have, all this theory about Sutcliffe not killing them all, because uh, it's theorised that Sutcliffe was offered a deal, which was to confess to them all, 
and you can get you know a cushy stay in uh, in Broadmoor and yeah you know personally I, I don't buy that I think looking at Sutcliffe's detailed confession he does seem to know a lot about each individual attack which would obviously suggest that he was the one that did them and uh, yeah uh, so even even the mischievous theory that I had about Jimmy Savile being uh, perhaps <laughs> uh, involved in some point unfortunately doesn't seem to hold water, though. Uh... Now then, listen to me, my good friend Frank. Here is my other good friend. It is the one that only... Now then, now then, Peter Sutcliffe. Meet Peter, Peter, meet Frank. Hello, Peter. Well, if you don't know what we're talking about, listeners, this was uh, Jimmy Savile, who was a friend of the prisoners in Broadmoor, uh, introducing Frank Bruno to Peter Sutcliffe. There's a famous picture that you can find on the internet of the three of them. Don't you have that on a mug? Yeah, I did. I'm, I got it made into a mug, which uh, confused a lot of my work colleagues and probably portrayed me in a poor light. But uh... <laughs> did Peter sort of not have on the most horrendous shell suit? He did. <laughs> Which I'm sure it, it was probably one Savile gave him because it yeah, looks yeah, like one of Savile's garish marathon outfits, doesn't it? Now, Rachel, give you, Peter, one of their lovely, lovely shelves, and I will give you one of mine with marathon written on the back. It was a pretty sick thing for Savile to do, and I bet he was chuckling to himself, wasn't he? He probably planned it for ages, knowing that Frank was coming into the, into the hospital. I, I think that Savile got off on shit like that. Oh, definitely. I, there's an incredible bit of footage that I just watched today, actually, on YouTube, where Rolf Harris is sketching Jimmy Savile. <laughs> and Rolf said, yeah, 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 well, yeah, Jimmy Gary Harris. Glitter watching. G- 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 <laughs> yeah, Gary Glitter interviewing them with, uh, with Cliff having a little... Character. Oh, no, let's leave Cliff out of it. An innocent man. Oh, yeah, yeah, allegedly. No, man. come on. Come on, Dave, let's not get it. He's just successfully sued the BBC. I don't think we should go there. All I'll say is, go on YouTube and look at the Dando web. There yeah. is some suggestions. I'm just protecting our houses, Dave, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, just... exactly, of course. Because the biggest mafioso in Britain is Harry Webb, a.k.a. Cliff. Oh, God, no, you're making it worse. <laughs> Back away. <laughs> Once the microphone's off, we'll have an interesting conversation, I'm sure. This this fantastic little scenario was was um, Rolf Harris going. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jimmy and I go back a long time, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy started going. Oh, yes, we certainly go. Now, then, come on, draw away, draw away, Rolfy boy. And he's there sketching him, you know. And I just thought this is remarkable. These two people. Who uh, one died and became the most notorious, the most notorious sex offender in Britain history, probably, and the other one is in prison for molesting uh, young women. So there we are. If you Google Savile Sutcliffe Bruno to find the infamous <laughs> photograph, of course, which led us into a dark path talking about Jimmy Savile, but I think it's not inconsequential to discuss Savile. With the with the with Sutcliffe. The other connections with Savile, uh, tenuous as they are, are that uh, the third victim was found very close to his home because uh, exactly. Savile lived on the outskirts of Rounday Park, Round where Park, exactly. Irene Richardson was killed. Josephine Whitaker, the tenth victim, was found in Savile Park, and Sutcliffe actually mentioned Savile during his trial when he was talking about killing Irene Richardson. He said that he thought he heard a voice 
coming from the building where Savile lived. I know they're tenuous and they haven't got really anything to do with it, but surely someone as sick as Savile possibly would have thought at the time he could get away with murdering somebody and getting it attributed to the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, I do. And of course, there's a huge rumour mill about that online. There's, a, there's big sort of homemade documentaries. I think the Ninth Circle is one, isn't it? That's, oh, yeah, um, yeah. About him being a wizard. Yeah, that's that, and there's with implications to prime ministers in the 1970s and all sorts of... Well, there was also... A low-budget uh, documentary that came out in 2006 called Shows Asylum, which uh, <laughs> shows Jimmy oh, Savile really? burying a victim. Actually, ladies and gentlemen, if you get a chance and you wish to watch something uh, to, to see what might be the most damning evidence that um, Jimmy Savile did bury some bodies, one of which might have even still been alive... <laughs> I would go to um, the film Showbiz Asylum. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it in several parts on YouTube. Very, very much worth a watch. Yeah, this was a film that myself and Dave made in 2006. It's a, it's a comedy film. It's uh, about the exploits and life of a showbiz agent called Johnny Evans and his sidekick, Spiros. And uh, it features many celebrities, such as Jimmy Savile. We're not mentioning this to plug it obviously but it's interesting that Dave came up with this idea that Savile was a murdering psychopath back then you know because we're talking the early 2000s aren't we and and I'm not I wasn't claiming any kind of great kind of ESP over this or basically myself Lee and our friend Adrian Jen the three of us had heard a lot of stories about Savile being a very dark character and uh, my mother-in-law, for example, would tell stories about knowing that there was a lot of sort of strange young men who would hang around Savile's house, for example. Everyone, when Savile lived in Manchester, thought Savile was a very odd, strange character, mm. potentially dangerous character. So I, I took it a step further, as I thought, or maybe what I thought was three steps further, in having him sort of bury a body, you know. I think maybe we, obviously, we sent things up to a massive point. We also had... <laughs> A friend of ours, Gareth, dressed as uh, as, as Peter Sutcliffe. Oh in, yeah, in yeah. One, in one particular live performance, which was very sort of very dark, and even your brother, I think, at one point did something similar as well. So we we, we were not averse to doing shocking things at all. We did some very shocking things. You know, Brian Blessed reading pornography and stuff mm-hmm. like this was. But well, amusing them first amusing and foremost. Them. We couldn't have been more. It could have been more prophetic, really. And some might say pathetic, but it certainly <laughs> couldn't be more prophetic about Jimmy Savile because no. we were so right about him. You know that we just thought out of all the characters that we did at show, or all the celebrities that we sent up, most of the other celebrities we sent up in a kind of aren't they ludicrous kind of way. But in Savile, we made him a really sort of dark figure, and it was. I think it was on the back, really, of the Louis Theroux documentary. I think we did it just after the Louis Theroux documentary, which made um, Adrian, myself, and and yourself, from what I can remember, think, oh, my God, he's a rum bastard. But Savile was uh, put forward as a suspect by a member of the public as being the Yorkshire Ripper. And uh, he was interviewed, although, you know, thousands of others were interviewed. But unusually, uh, a set of Savile's teeth uh, was cast because uh, there was some bite marks on one of the victims. So that suggests that they were probably looking at Savile 
a bit closer than other people. It, it shows you, again, that he was protected to some degree because people knew that he was a wrong one. I'm talking about people in higher society and in circles. The rumour mill of Savile had been going on and on and on. And I remember seeing Kershaw, Liz Kershaw, and she was talking frankly about Savile on the radio. Yeah. And she was saying that um, apparently that the News of the World and the Sun knew for years about the stories of Savile and necrophilia and they would never print. Right. They would never print. Well, they were so very she... close to printing at a couple of occasions and they was... They was he did want to, I think, but they were just too scared. He was very litigious, wasn't he? So Absolutely. And he knew that he would have powerful solicitors who, who won the majority of their cases. And if they didn't have the proof, he knew that they didn't have proof. Mm. He used to it. taunt them. Absolutely. If they went for it, uh, with him, chances are they would be making huge payouts to him. And get, and then they'd get the sack, you know? You know he, he had everything tied up and stitched up, but he also had... The royal family in the palm of his hands, the prime minister in the palm mm. of his hands. He went to bloody Christmas dinner with Thatcher, for Christ's sake. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, he, he would also, because he was very friendly and involved in Thatcher's government, one of the people in that was uh, Michael Havis, the attorney general who prosecuted Sutcliffe. That does lead on to another part of my mischievous theory in that the weird situation of Havers wanting to accept the plea of diminished responsibility without a trial. You know, could that have been something to do with Savile? Stretching it a little bit, Savile was a paedophile, obviously. Havers has been implicated as a, implicated. somebody that attended these parties where rent boys were supplied. Yeah, let's put this really, again, I mean, I, mean, I know I'm going to make some big links here very quickly, but again, with the Jill Dando thing, there's been some talk about that being regarded to this, this idea yes. of... Yeah. The rumour mill, this is where, again, Liz Kershaw being one of them, where people wanted to talk about the ill behaviour of, of higher-ranking members of society. Uh, there was an MP that put a file together that was passed on to Leon Britton, of course. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. I heard a strange noise there on the line. Perhaps we're being listened to and bugged by the higher society now, by the lizards. <laughs> um, the thing is that uh, this was passed on uh, to Leon Britton, and apparently the file disappeared. Apparently, Leon Britton, the Home Secretary of the time, lost the file. Yeah. Leon Britton, who has very recently been implicated in some very, very sinister stuff. Allegedly. Allegedly. I have to say that because we don't want to get sued. So we'll keep saying allegedly. There are a lot of very, very strange and interesting things that have gone on. And I don't doubt for a minute that we haven't really scratched the surface on a, a lot of these situations to do with Savile and, and higher society and why wouldn't there be some collusion in government to try and stop the Sutcliffe case going any further if for, if for nothing else to hide the incompetence it's, it's part of what the straight media would be frantically want to call false news False news that keeps getting hugely belittled all the time by the BBC and the, the straight media, simply because the straight media knows they're under threat yeah. of people wanting to delve deeper into and not trust the straight media because of things that have happened in recent years. You know, Indeed. this is part of the problem. And, and, and I'm not in any way defending 
people like Alex Jones at Infowars and stuff because he's just a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's a complete clown and, and, and very hateful person. You're much better off listening to someone like David Icke who's, although quite balmy at times, he does it with some real charm. Well, David Icke was trying to expose Savile himself, wasn't he, for decades? In many ways, there's many things that Ike says which are, I could think, quite brilliant and quite true. Yeah. Things about society, things about the establishment, about wanting to keep people in their place yeah. and at their level, which yeah. I think rings hugely true for most of us, about higher society in Great Britain and around the world, that he talks about all the time. Now he goes off on tangents with his lizards and everything, okay. But there is a fundamental. Well, now that's where it falls down, doesn't it? You know, it it's... does. It's shameful. It's, it's a shame, really, because it, it gets very sensational. But there is a fundamental truth about so much of what David Icke says. You know, it's quite a Marxist statement, really, that David Icke makes a lot of the time in in what he's trying to say about society. You know, because he points out that we're living in a very unfair society, where from day one, when you're at school, you're told to go there and do this and pull your socks up and put on your tie and behave yourself and behave this way and behave that way. And it's all for one reason, really, so that we are part of this tight society and kept it within our place. And if we can if we could somehow fight our ways up a notch or two, we're very lucky. Jimmy Savile managed to fight his way up five notches from ten notches from where he was. I'm sure we'll cover Savile at one point, but I think his eccentricity and was was his power because he could act any way he wanted. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think he, he used that. I think it's quite Shakespearean because a lot of the time, you know, if you look and see something like King King Lear, who was one of the most powerful men in the king's court, was the, the king's favourite jester, you know. He could slip in and out and have the stories to tell and everything else and, and would have the ear of the king. The person who had the ear of the king is a very powerful person. And that's mm. what happened with Savile. He had the ear of the king, you know, i.e. Thatcher, and, you know, and Prince Charles and other people in society. And like you say, he did it by being this eccentric sort of clown idiot. But this clown idiot that was incredibly smart, let's not forget, Savile yeah. was incredibly smart, um, who was this enormous fundraiser, which made, gave him huge power. Raising lots of money gave him huge power. Fundraising makes you powerful. There's no doubt about that. If you're not, you know, it might not make you rich. Chances are it will end up making you both. And um, Savile got the keys to the frigging kingdom. Mm. In his eyes, because he had the keys to Broadmoor. He, he could do anything he wanted at Stoke Mandeville. He had, he had rooms and place, place. I mean, he literally ran Broadmoor. I know. It's amazing, the, isn't it? Under the bloody consent of the Conservative government. That it's it's always been a controversial... Shower of shit Conservative government that we had throughout the 1980s. It's always been a controversial place, Broadmoor, though. I mean, the abuse of the prisoners uh, has been well publicised. But interestingly, you know, Sutcliffe, when he, he, he got convicted, he obviously got sent to Parkhurst. But he still maintained that he heard the voice of God and he wanted to get moved to Broadmoor. Now, eventually, he did get moved to Broadmoor. But I read recently that two years ago, I think it was 2016, he's been moved back to prison because they reckon, you know, there's nothing that they need to do for him in terms of treating any sort of mental illness. Yeah. It's like they can't make their mind up, yeah. you know, because uh, Ivor Sutcliffe's been very clever in deceiving them for all these years. Well, I suppose what might have happened there, of course, is that, that, that they can ask for psychiatrists and they can 
and uh, they are legally bound, I suppose, the prisons to bring in psychiatrists. Uh, and uh, and it might be that if, from a prison point of view, it's an easier way to deal with the prisoner because possibly in a, in a prison prison, you know, it's more likely that it's going to be a lot harder to protect him. The first attack on Sutcliffe was actually in Parkhurst by a guy yeah. called James Costello. That's what I'm kind of saying. You know, it was... Who uh, attacked him with a coffee jar and yeah. uh, caused you know, massive damage to the left side of his face. I think he required about 30 stitches. But then he was subsequently attacked twice or three times, I think, in Broadmoor. In Broadmoor. Yeah. he lost his eye as well? Yeah, he lost... Uh, yeah, the second attack was where someone tried to strangle him with uh, a pair of headphones. That was not even reported to the police by Broadmoor. Because even though it was considered attempted murder, it wasn't even, didn't deem it worthy enough. But yeah, he got he got rescued by two killers, one of whom was the Stockwell Strangler. The whole thing's kind of strange and unusual. The third attack was uh, when he lost his eye. He was yes. attacked by, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, was it Ian Kay? He attacked him with a uh, a Parker rollerball, I believe, and uh, wow, stabbed that's... him in both eyes. He Jesus, like casino, refreshing <laughs> <laughs> casino. Jesus, how horrible! So Sutcliffe lost uh, sight, I think, in his right eye, and he was impaired vision in the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently he was screaming, "I, I can't see! I can't see!" <laughs> But yeah, and I think he was attacked again. Someone tried to take out his other eye. They attacked him with a fork and actually said whilst they were attacking him, you know, I'm going to take out your other eye. Uh, but Sutcliffe managed to dodge that and got stabbed in the cheek instead. I've got your fork in my face! I don't like you. So when we were, I was coming in, into this podcast, I thought there was only one film about the Yorkshire Ripper, that being the one we've just discussed, but I have discovered there is another one in the pipeline. It's called Suckliffe, and it's by a company called Wise Guy Productions. I think. And uh, if you look on the website, it seems very a very serious film, and, and what it says is that our Peter Suckliffe project is an ongoing, unfinished and timeless piece of work. We at Wise Guy Productions strive to bring this dramatically disturbing, sad tale of one of Britain's most notorious serial killers to the big screen. Our story is untold. This version covers the major players in a tale of lies, death and deceit spanning over countless decades. The project aims to show how ordinary people were affected and how their lives were ruined. Our story explains in detail what effects the victims, families and friends had to deal with. This script has yeah. been carefully developed and has never been seen before. So I think for the benefit of the listeners, I will just play the trailer. The voice. The voice is in the air. I can't stop him, you know. I try to tell him, but carry out me orders and tell no one. So the orders I received, I did. That was the real tragedy. I didn't have any other choice, you see. Voices in the air. And what I did after that. 
I was compelled to do. Sounds like he's talking through a kazoo. Does, doesn't he? It's unbelievable. <laughs> and and uh, he's got a rubbish run as well. He's, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm running after these girls. Oh, I look so threatening. No, you don't, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but it'd be interesting to see what type of film it is. Going off the trailer and the stuff that's on the websites, you know, it's looking at the aftermath and the effect that Suckley had on the victims. I was Little quite clips. reassured in some ways by the fact that there's a scene where he's dragging the girls up to the old rover you know <laughs> she's wearing a pair of white chinos i think and i thought they're, they're a bit clean after he's bludgeoned yeah true yeah um and it's not very bloody it's not very it didn't look very graphic at that point he had a bit of blood on his I face i was trying to think who that was you know it could have been irene richardson because there was like a building behind him wasn't behind it? so yeah. i think i think he killed in there some toilets in round hay park Let's just remind the listeners that uh, Jimmy Savile lives very nearby, and merely a stone's throw from uh, from that scene. If only Savile could have done one of the murders. Well, exactly, and who's to say he didn't? You know, could he have resisted that uh, who's temptation? To say? Now, I know that you've done some amazing research, and I was wondering if you are ready to tell us about the conversation, the email conversation that you had with uh, a certain gentleman. Oh yeah, this was uh, this was a guy called Nolo Gara. Now he's wrote a book called The Real Yorkshire Ripper. It came out about 25 years ago. And his theory, although he doesn't call it a theory, he calls it fact, is that Sutcliffe is merely a copycat killer. And he, right. he says that Sutcliffe was only responsible for four of the murders. Uh, he was re- He says he was responsible for many of the other attacks. But in terms of the murders, he only killed four. Now, I think the first victim he says that, he, that was killed by Sutcliffe was Yvonne Pearson. Now, she was officially the seventh or eighth, I think it was the seventh victim. And the man that he says is the real Yorkshire Ripper is this Irish guy called Billy Tracy. Now, Billy Tracy is apparently somebody that worked for him. And he says that he fits a lot of the photo fits, a lot of the descriptions. He drove a car that was spotted at the scenes or some of the scenes. And he also says that his blood group matches the forensics that were found on some of the bodies. The blood group stuff is quite interesting because he's saying that Sutcliffe is a blood group O and that yeah. this Billy Tracy is blood group B. He can be linked to the, some of the attacks and murders by a semen that was found. I mean, there wasn't much forensics in terms of what was found on the bodies and that would link to the killer. There was some semen that was found on Irene Richardson 
the one that we just uh, talked about near Savile's house. <laughs> so this this gentleman isn't tra- suggesting that this Billy Tracy was also linked with the one and only Savile. You say. He, he then, isn't. No, then. no, unfortunately not. <laughs> now um, then, Billy. Now then, Peter. We'll go out as a threesome tonight on the prayer for some brain damage. Into <laughs> <laughs> the train. Yeah. Sorry. If if tra- Billy Tracy and Sutcliffe were like a team, at any point, you can imagine Savile in the back going. Oh come on, lads! You can do it. You can do it. Oh, oh you're my lads. You're my boys. You say, you say, you're like Dave Lee Travis and uh, and uh, Simon Bates together. Oh, oh, with me, what a team you see! And you are my murder squad. You two, you two with Sir, Sir Jimmy. Oh, 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 out there doing the business. If nothing I, I can else, just, I can see it. I yeah, can if, see it. if nothing else, that would make of... a superb uh, film, wouldn't it? Well, you know what? I think maybe that's we need to go to production on that. It's another another conspiracy, the real conspiracy of the uh, York Tripper case. So going back to Billy Tracy, who is the number one suspect, according to Noel O'Gara, he, he also sent the tapes. Now, this is a crucial bit, and I think his theory does fall down big style here, because he says that Tracy sent the tape and sent the letters. Because there was saliva found on the envelopes, and it was shown that the person who, whose saliva it was was a blood group B... He is linking that evidence to semen that was found on Joan Harrison. Now, Joan Harrison was the famous Preston case that was attributed yes. to Peter Sutcliffe uh, because it had very similar hallmarks to the other murders. But the person that murdered her was a guy called Christopher Smith. I think we mentioned that in the last podcast. I now, they, seem to remember. Yeah, they, they, they discovered that he was the killer through uh, DNA, through the semen. So he's he's putting a lot of store in this this blood group because he says you know the the blood group of the envelopes match and the blood group of the semen on Joan Harrison match, okay. But both those cases have been proven to be uh, the work of somebody else. Just going back to what you asked about the email conversation, I did have a, a short conversation with Noel Gora. I did put this point to him, and he said that uh, John Humble was blackmailed into confessing to being the hoaxer on the, because they said that he attacked his brother and he nearly killed him and to let him off with that they made him cough to the uh, hoaxer mm. so if, if we're to say that John Humble and Christopher Smith who were clearly not the Ripper although they were the same blood group now it is important to say that secreta means there is um, traces of blood in their other blood bodily fluids like fluids, semen, uh, semen saliva yeah. and sweat a B secreta that only accounts for six percent of the population which is very low and but you can very under- small you can understand now why Oldfield got so excited about the letters and the tape yeah because he was working on the assumption that Joan Harrison was killed by the Ripper yes so when he finds out that the blood group matches and it's only 6% of the population, you can yeah. understand why he's thinking, oh, God, this has to be the man. But, of course, yeah. we know that Joan Harrison wasn't. As we said, it's been uh, attributed to Christopher Smith. Yeah, somebody else, exactly. Yeah, so anyway, Noel O'Gara is sticking to his guns uh, on everything virtually. There's, there's another clip of him on YouTube talking to this old copper. He's basically getting the copper to talk about whether there was two murders, there was two suspects yeah and this has some credibility in terms of the police whilst they were looking for the ripper did think they were looking for two different people right now i'm not sure where that comes from it's possibly again could be linked to the joan harrison case could be linked to the tape and the and the saliva found on the envelopes they also got 
some semen from Irene Richardson, who was on a clothing, and that was found to be from Blood Group O. So if they're it's... thinking that Richardson is Ripper, if they're thinking the Tate and the Letterer Ripper and Harrison is Ripper, then you have got yeah. two blood groups there. Yes. So yeah. O'Gara says that uh, Sutcliffe was Blood Group O, but that doesn't really tell you anything because mm. O'Gara does not say Sutcliffe killed Irene Richardson. No. He says that that was Billy Tracy. So I think Billy he's Tracy. getting a bit confused. Uh, Seems that like there is some ambiguity there because, like you say, because the forensic situation back in the day was not like it's today. You know, when you can pinpoint things and you can get down to the minutiae of stuff with, with the DNA and with, the, you know, with, uh, on the forensics, that um, it creates clarity. There is, sounds like there's some muddying of the waters here. The official version says that Sutcliffe was a blood, a blood type B, Okay, which again could link mm. him to the letters and also the Joan Harrison murder. Crucially, he is not a secretor. Right. I've been trying to confirm what Sutcliffe's blood group is because I'm sure a lot of the conspiracy theorists could say, oh, well, that's just the police saying that because they're trying mm. to cover up for somebody else. But it's very difficult to find any information on it. And I noticed that somebody had actually requested his blood group under the Freedom of Information Act. Oh, yeah. But the response that they got was that it would take too long to find it because there are so many... Oh, really? Isn't that interesting? And it does it fuel... Will... Talk the about conspiracy. fuel to the... Yeah, exactly. Fuel to the fire for a conspiracy theory that he, he wasn't responsible for half of what happened. I, you know, that staggers me because that should be open and on record and to be well-established. Sutcliffe, when he was interviewed previously, he was asked what his blood group was and he said, I don't know, but I'll, you know, but he was quite willing to give his sample. Now, you would think that if he was the killer, that he would not volunteer to do that. Either you know, that I mean, or he might have just have been Yorkshire-born. Yorkshire bread, drunkened, hammered arm, and weakened fed. Or in Peter Sutcliffe's case, it would have been said more like this: Yorkshire bread, Yorkshire bread, strongin, hammered arm, weakened fed. <laughs> oh, Granny, Granny, what are you doing? Or maybe uh... Yorkshire bread, Yorkshire bread. Strongin, hammer, weakened fed. You see, in that trailer for this new film, he does sound to me like a cross between Craig Cash and Frank Sidebottom. That's it. You know he does. I was trying to think of it. sounded like you've got it there, Dave. Sidebottom. Got a hammer in my hand and you're in a lot of trouble, young lady. Oh, yes, you are. You really are. The other thing that disturbed me, apart from the voice, is his hair. It's like not... Peter Shilton circa Italian Eyes. Exactly. That's not Sooty. Sooty had massive hair. That incredible sort of square perm. You know, yeah. not like fucking Frank Sidebottom boys. Eh? There. Going, Come on, love. God's telling me to do this. Oh, yes, he is. He really is. <laughs> he I did is like the... the down the subway bit there, though, you know, but yeah. you know, that was quite... But uh, I'm afraid to say, I think he would not have gone down a subway openly holding a hammer no. when there was three or four girls in front of him. I think that might have left him open. There's four girls. He's got his nice um, Lewis Collins uh, brown leather jacket <laughs> on there. And he's got his hammer openly swinging in, in the breeze and starts running down a subway after these girls. Yeah. You know, obviously, they would leave a couple of sub suspects there and they'd go, oh, yeah, it's that, it's that fella Peter Sutcliffe who goes in that pub down there. Who the sounds like Frank Sidebottom. Yeah, he's the guy who sounds like Frank Sidebottom, who... You won't know who Frank Sidebottom is for another 20 years, but let me just tell you now, he sounds just like him. 
yeah. you know, he does. So, yeah. so you got the bad voice, you got the bad hair. The other yeah, thing bad that choice, bad annoyed hair. me was the fact that again they seem to be going down the route of the voice of God. You know, as if well, well exactly straight theory. away. Straight away, it was like, I have been told to do this. Oh, yes, I have, by God himself. I just suspect that what will happen is, yet again, that the documentaries will prove to be far superior than any kind of reconstruction, as is usually the case with these things, sadly. Yeah. And what I would hope as well, because I hear, as you told me the other day, that there's going to be a another documentary that BBC4 will be putting forward. Yeah. So this is a documentary done by BBC4, and it's going to be three hours long, uh, presumably in three parts. And uh, they promise to reinvestigate the infamous case with a wholly new perspective, asking whether prevailing attitudes of the time towards women and prostitutes in particular influenced the investigation and meant that Peter Sutcliffe was caught years too late. Uh, so they are going back to speak to survivors of the attacks, journalists who covered the case, and uh, I think you said before, didn't you, when we were off uh, off mic, you said it'll be interesting to see how what they say in the documentary relates to what we're saying on this podcast. Uh, absolutely. I think that could be really interesting as to mm. how, how, how many relevant or salient points that hopefully we've made mm. get brought up in the documentary. But, you know, with any of these big, iconic, uh, mythical, you know, they are almost mythical now after time, legends and stories of great sad happenings and there are going to be so many different angles to look at them you know yeah i'm, I'm using my words i'm trying to use my words carefully on this without being too sensational because it's you know it's, it's horrendous there were horrendous brutal acts of murder but the overall case is very very intriguing isn't it mm. and you know here's us we've done three podcasts over this whole um business we've presented one retelling of this horrendous story and uh it will be very interesting to hear other perspectives on it. I hope we're not going to be bashing our thighs going, ah, I wish we'd made that point, you know? So I think we've been very thoroughly. I think we've covered a lot of bases. I think we've mm. covered a lot of ground with this, not as much as uh, as uh, Sutcliffe's size eight. Over... Size seven. <laughs> Sorry, size seven. <laughs> not even an eight. Not even an eight. A size seven. Poor little Peter. Comes out of his big truck with his little size sevens. My slight fear would be that, you know, I mean, you know how things have got with everybody wanting to lock up the 1970s now with all these yeah. Operation U-Tree and criticising attitudes of the time, which, you know, yeah. in hindsight yeah. were, were dodgy and you can't really defend them. I, I, but I, yeah, absolutely. You have to take things in context, you know. You, you have, have to, to understand take them. what it was like at that time and nobody knew any different, did they? So no, they didn't. It's People easy responded. to be critical and I think there will be some criticism of the sexism and the misogyny and the attitudes towards prostitutes, but it's the environment people were living in at the time. You know, of course, and I'm sure people. prostitutes were not respected by other women. You know, it's not just no, men that didn't respect them. And I'm no, sure no, no, women, women were harder than the men. Of you course, know, yeah. You know, it was a, it was quite, still quite brutal times in many ways. You remember as kids, you know, your parents would be judgmental over things. You know, they'd see on the TV, but then they'd be laughing out loud and hearty at fucking ain't half hot, mum. People go, oh, goodness gracious me, doing like, you know, ridiculous over-the-top Indian accents and things. Yes. We'll have to do a podcast on the bitter man that is Donna Stell. Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's do that.
by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. It's a little short ask called Donna Stell. <laughs> Brilliant. L- listeners, can we just say as well, the hope is for the future, that uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes is a very broad church of a podcast, and it will, we will be covering a lot of ground, lots of areas that Lee and I believe have an element of wickedness, whether it be a good kind of dark side wickedness, but certainly wickedness. So we may go off in areas and on tangents that may surprise you, listener. Yeah, it's not like we go around saying wicked, that's wicked much. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. we're not not Lenny Henry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Tracy, I mean, what O'Gara says, and this is quite interesting in terms of him trying to pin the murders on Tracy, he says that he taught Billy Tracy to drive in 1978. Right. But at the same time, he's saying that Tracy started killing in 75. Now, there's plenty of evidence to show that the, the, the women were murdered by somebody that was driving. Could he have really done these murders on foot? There would have been it's... far more eyewitnesses seeing them walking walking about together. I mean, that, that sounds like a bit of a flaw in his argument, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, he got John Sutcliffe on board, Peter's dad. And uh, there is some footage which I might play for the listeners. They're saying that Sutcliffe's murders were the copycat murders That's right. of the Irish Ripper murders. Yeah. Right. There was two men's murders mixed up. The police admitted that there was a copycat Ripper at large. They knew that after Sutcliffe's second victim was discovered. Right. And that was quite clearly on the record okay. by the police Ripper squad. Mm. And what I'm saying to you, Jerry, and to the people listening to me now who had to suffer the trauma and all the fear of this, was that ultimately when the police couldn't get their hands on the real Ripper who had also sent them the letters on the tape recording, they settled to close the slate, wipe everything off by offering this disturbed man, Peter Sutcliffe, 10 years in a luxury mental home if he would plead guilty to everything and he was guaranteed that he wouldn't have to stand trial and that he might get out of the mental home in 10 years and he had a choice of either doing that or going to jail for life in the harsh regime in jail in Parkhurst, Isle of Wight uh, where he would be uh, have a terribly hard regime naturally for one of his murders alone he could have got life in jail for that but he agreed to say I done them all in exchange for this deal and I have Mr. John Sutcliffe, Peter Sutcliffe's father, sitting here beside me now in the studio. Good morning, John. He morning, will John. confirm what I'm saying. Okay, I'll just move this here. Welcome to Ireland, John, and I'd like to thank you for coming over to help me in my campaign. Great pleasure. Great pleasure to come and, um, and help you, Noel. Now, I've been in touch with Noel for <clears throat> by, by letter for most of five years, and personally, for the last three, on about four occasions. And I firmly believe that Noel has a very solid case. And what, what do you base that on, John? On the, um, uh, well, uh, you haven't yet mentioned the fact that Noel has put his story on tape. <clears throat> and that I've listened to these tapes. All his evidence is collated on those four tapes. It's uh, six hours listening. And um, I've listened to all that. Uh, I've listened to Noel's explanations of why he started um, this campaign against this man, Mr. Uh, Mr. X, whom he knows personally and is um, apparently employed in the, in the past. Now, I'd also like to say now to all you listeners that I know, categorically, I know that my son did not do all the murders. How, how do you know that, John? I've heard uh, by 
Word of mouth, he's told us that he didn't do them all. And how did he explain that to you? Well, in the first instance, he said to his, he said to his two brothers and me when we visited him, when he was on remand, he said, you know, I didn't do them all. Right. In, the solicitor, in his solicitor's office, whilst he was on remand, I was told by a solicitor, Mr. Curry McGill, that Peter would not go for trial. He'd admitted to all the offences that had been put before him. He was going to plead guilty to everything. He was going to plead guilty to everything. And, exactly. normally, and normally there would not be a trial. And there would not be a trial. Uh, that there was a place for him in uh, in the Liverpool um, well, the Park Lane mental home. Right. I think someone who's slightly more gullible when it comes to the idea of a conspiracy theory uh, in myself, I um, I find it quite intriguing and uh, it uh, it is interesting. But as you say, the the detail and they always say the devil's in the detail. Hmm. Detailed descriptions that Sutcliffe gave, uh, in, unless he was coerced into making them, are quite telling, aren't they? And again, you can always go down conspiratorial routes. You can always find avenues for the conspiracy, can't you? Hmm. You know, I would think there might be um, greater and more evidence for conspiracies than there is in this case. Let's put it that way. He's still sticking to it. You know, he's still saying that Tracy sent the letters and the tape. Thought at least he would have admitted that he was wrong about that, given the DNA evidence. Well, what he believes is what he believes, my friend. Yeah. We'll have to leave it at that, I'm afraid. Something like that, you are not going to change their mind. They've they have got themselves rooted in a belief system, and that's the way that's the way mm. it will go. You know, the more interesting aspect of conspiracy for me, which I think did exist, was from a political point of view. I think there was an effort made to try and sweep it all under the carpet yeah. quick, quickly at yeah. first, and yeah. not have for it to have to go to a trial, just to get it all out of the way because it had been such a bloody long-winded cock-up, mm. especially after the hoax tapes, which. Yeah. Meant that there was another at least three, set of, set of murders, yeah, at least three murders that mm. took place. So you know that made sense that the government and the and the West Yorkshire Police and the powers that be in general wanted to get it out of the public consciousness as quickly as possible. And yeah. that is that is a, a, a viewpoint, a conspiratorial viewpoint, if you like, that has a lot of legs because that seemed to take place. You know, yeah. that did seem to ha to happen, did it not? If Sutcliffe was only a copycat <clears throat> killer and he took the deal, he didn't get what he wanted ultimately, did he? He's, he's, no. You know, if he was thinking he was only going to get 10 years in Broadmoor, then he must be majorly pissed off. Why has he not come out and said, I didn't actually kill them all, I was conned into co coughing for them? Well, to be honest with you, mate, if he actually believed that, if he believed that, then I'm kind of half, half convinced he heard the, the word of God because he would have been very bloody naive to mm. think that he would have only got 10 years for killing that many people, yeah. you know, and going Broadmoor for 10 years and then be out on the streets. It was never going to happen. No, no. You know, I, I suspect that what happened, you know, and this is pure guesswork from me, but once they extracted the confession out of him, there was an awful lot of, of to and, and fro in trying to convince the law courts to get him convicted straight away as mentally ill and out of the way flushed out of the way you know i'm yeah i'm sure of that because the trial only helped to to and i know we've been over this before but only helped to illuminate the errors that were made and yeah. and the the pre prolonged agony literally the prolonged agony 
that took place because of the problems that happened with the hoaxing and and you know and not listening to good advice not having good counsel the police not having good counsel and listening to what the FBI had to say and listening to what Scotland Yard had to say and pushing on further forward so to me, I'm sure there would have been a huge effort to brush the whole bloody thing under the carpet as quickly as possible yeah. so that those Freemasons could carry on in their little hierarchical system, carrying on being jolly little coppers in West Yorkshire. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating, strange, and, and, and a, a remarkable dark subject, my friend. Which uh, I think we are now at the end of. I think we have done enough on Sutcliffe on the case. I think, my dear, dear friend that after three quite remarkable and challenging episodes on a very, very dark and mysterious figure and horrendous figure in Peter Sutcliffe, we should move on to something slightly lighter. Oh, yeah. And maybe use the word wicked in a good way because something yes. wickedly good and fun should um, should come along next. Yeah, certainly that will be the next the next one. Thank you for anybody that's uh, stayed with us and listened to this. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you've 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 gleaned some kind of uh, new or new angles on this case. If you're fascinated by some of the things we've talked about, go look online, find out more, and stay with us for the future because we've got some interesting topics I think to discuss. Yeah, so you've been listening to something wicked this way comes. I uh, hope you join us next time.
Good evening. I want to talk to you this evening, not as a psychiatrist, because I've never met you, and because probably a psychiatrist is the last kind of person you want to see. I do want to ask you to give yourself up. You see, you've made your point eight times, and if you continue making your point, you're simply going to produce public sympathy for these prostitutes, and I'm sure that that is not what you want. I want to ask you for the supreme sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your liberty for your beliefs. I want you to pick up the phone, not tomorrow, not next week, but now, and tell the police who you are. Sticking a load of drugs in me. Who told you that? There are no drugs involved, you have not heard. What are you going to do to me? 
Do it to you. This is the 1980s. We talk through our troubles. You will be able to contact me when you are suffering in need. Hypnotherapy tends to be effective at these moments. Hypnosis? No. But you're searching out questions, looking for the answers. I can't do this alone. I mean, this treatment has been sanctioned by the highest authority. Hypnosis? They want to know why. The Lord is my shepherd. Why? I shall not be here. Why you did those things? I told them already. It was God. God told me to clean the streets of filth. God. Yes, God. I did what he or that voice told me to do. God. Yes, God. Because you just said, or that voice. It was God, because you know it's God talking to you when it's God talking to you. Look, I guarantee that these meetings, these sessions, will stay private and confidential. There is light at the end of every tunnel. Even yours. Work with me. Improve your chances or later on. Perhaps parole, Peter. I'm not at liberty to say any more right now. Something not quite right about you, Dr. Spencer. Oh, you're very nice. You're too nice. The cold truth yeah. is, we both want, need, results. The alternative is the people. I, I know, I know. You said all that already. So, agree. Let's go on this journey together, Peter. No. You talk, Dr. Spencer, but don't say a lot. Let's talk about you, about yourself. Tell me something. Share secrets. he drank with in pubs in the area began to notice that he had difficulty forming relationships with women the time i knew peter for that uh, roughly two-year period he never had a girlfriend he never had a girlfriend no, no. why was that uh he didn't seem to take off it uh, his conversation you know at that time he was a good looking lad there was no doubt about it you know in his own way but uh, his conversation won't really too good, you know, not much chat. He used to ask me to, uh, you know, if I had a mate that had make up a foursome, but none of my mates were ever interested, you know. They didn't fancy and They didn't know. Not the local girls, you know. 
They were just quiet, deep. An ex-grave digger tells the story of how Sutcliffe had once shown him a handful of rings. There'd be about five or seven rings, you know. And um, he said, uh, I've got these, you know, body, you know, of bodies, like, you know. Just want a word with my Julie. I've got no brass till Monday. Get the best looking one. It's not an easy gaff to penetrate. That was the biggest thing that ever happened. I did with a young lady mm. in Buckingham Palace. She's in the back of the car. Oh, hanging on to me like a life belt. I think she might remember it. When all their various fathers, brothers, boyfriends, husbands come looking for a movie, they saw no shotgun. 